HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network since 2009. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Hello to everyone. I'm Louisa Kasdan, your host for Let's Talk About Food, a podcast devoted to first-person storytelling where food plays a pivotal, if not a starring role. Everyone has a food story. Food is at the heart of human connection, at the center of love, of ritual, of need and want, and most of all, food creates community. And community is what we crave. Our guest today is Mark Erickson, the provost of the Culinary Institute of America. We wanted to know how this accomplished chef, arguably the most influential shaper of top-level chefs and how they're educated, got to where he is. We also wanted to plumb his thoughts on the future of the restaurant industry, where culinary education is going, and how he thinks the TV and media environment has shaped the new generation of chefs. Let's have a listen to Mark. I'd like to find out a little bit about what it means to be a provost and what it means to be at the CIA after some very surprising years in the world of food. So, Mark, let me ask you that question first. What does a provost do? Well, you know, I should have asked that same question before I accepted <laughs> the job because I'm still finding out what the provost does at an institution. It's a pretty broad set of responsibilities, but mostly my attention is focused on the overall health and education of our students and everything that supports that. So health and education is you would have supervision over the curriculum and campus life as well, faculty. Curriculum and campus life, especially focused on their board program, their dining, making sure that they are well cared for. Well, let me start with you. When I read your bio, you seem to be pretty much a lifer at the CIA. <laughs> I have been here for quite a number of years, yes. How did you choose that path? Was there a moment where you stood up and said, I am meant to be a chef? How did you find your way there in the first place? I think all chefs get to their position in life differently. And I actually am here today because at the age of 14, I wanted a motorcycle. Growing up in Minnesota with two older brothers, I was pretty much in a, a family of what we called gearheads. I think that term still applies to some 
folks. I wanted a motorcycle and my dad, not wanting to be discouraging, he said that I could have one, but if I wanted a motorcycle, I needed to earn the money myself to buy it. I think he thought that was a safe response, but what he didn't realize is that the world of food and restaurants is the industry of opportunity as we refer to it. And so I was able to secure a job as a dishwasher at the age of 14 with the original intention is to earn enough money to buy a motorcycle. And on my very first day of work, I was struck by being introduced to the chef of the hotel that I got the job at. And I had never in my life met somebody who loved their work as much as this gentleman. And what started off as a desire to have a motorcycle turned out to be a fascination with how people who prepare food for others and the joy they get from that responsibility and that job. I worked all through high school and I never recall having the conversation directly, but he was a graduate of the Culinary Institute of America from the class of 1969. And at some point along the way during my high school years and working there all through high school, it was just determined that that's where I was going to go upon graduation. And so I came to the CI as a freshly minted 18-year-old with a high school diploma in hand and moved to New York. It was the first time I'd ever been east of the Mississippi River and came to New York and started here as a student in 1975. Wow. That's a great story. That is a great story. Yeah, I continued to be in awe of our Ron Piscatelli was his name, who was the gentleman who introduced me to this profession. And I get in touch with him every once in a while. He's still around and he's still just as energetic as he was back then. So tell me, so then everybody who graduates from the CIA goes off into the world of restaurant and hospitality for a time. Did you? Yes, I graduated in 1977. I ended up working in my final semesters here at the school on the weekends in a hotel in the Poconos of Pennsylvania for a Swiss chef. And he was also very impressive and somebody who I found to be a great mentor. And upon graduation, I worked for him full time. After about a year and a half, he fired me with all good intentions. He fired me to go work for a friend of his who was also a Swiss chef who worked in Florida. He did the same thing. He fired me and had me go work for a friend of his at the Greenbrier in West Virginia. So I ended up growing up in the Swiss kitchen here in the United States, which ultimately led me to go work in Switzerland. So I worked at the Palace Hotel in Stad, Switzerland. Oh my goodness. I have to tell you, I was someone who I have been to the Palace Hotel many times, the Palace, we call it. I lived in Stad, and then we bought a house in Rougemont. So, yes, I know. Yes, I know. Yeah. I thought everybody who worked there was Italian. The funny story is, is that in the kitchen, being in the French part of, of Switzerland, before I left, everybody said, well, you need to make sure you polish up on your French, which I did only to show up in the kitchen the very first day of work. And everybody working in, on the kitchen staff came from the German part of Switzerland. So <laughs> during prep, everybody spoke German. All the wait staff was from the Swiss part of Switzerland. So they spoke Italian, <laughs> but service was all done in French. So I left at the end of my uh, time there having my own language, which was a combination of all three uh, languages with a little bit of English mixed in. So it was a mess, but it was a fabulous time and a really formative part of my career. Totally fabulous. You know, there's a famous anecdote about George Berlitz, who started the Berlitz language schools, and he was Belgian. And of course, Belgians speak a whole polyglot of languages, including Flemish and French. And he thought, since everyone in his family spoke a different language, that when he grew up, he'd get his own language. 
<laughs> which, which kind of makes sense to me when I think about it. Exactly. Makes sense. Wow. So then you came back to the States. Did you get fired from the Palace Hotel as well or no? <laughs> uh, the season ended, which is about the same as being fired. <laughs> I went back to the Greenbrier and spent a few more years at the Greenbrier. And during that time, I had always had aspirations to serve on the U.S. Culinary Olympic team. So I tried out for that team and in 1988 was appointed to be one of the five members representing the United States in the Culinary Olympics. And turned out that the manager of that team was a gentleman who was then the president of the Culinary Institute of America. And so he attracted me to come to teach at the CI. So I returned to my alma mater as a faculty member in 1984 and spent uh, a number of years teaching. I left the Institute for a total of nine years to go back to being an executive chef and then returned in 1999 to head up our campus in California in the Napa Valley. And I've been back to the Institute since 1999. Just one word. Most people have never heard of the Culinary Olympics. What is it? It is essentially, it's a gathering of chefs that represent their home country. It's always taking place in Germany. And so Germany was the host site of the Culinary Olympics. It takes place every four years along with the same year as the Athletic Olympics. And these different nations would have their teams compete in a series of different exercises, essentially, demonstrating their ability in culinary and bacon and pastry and hot foods and cold foods and presentations and those kinds of things. And ultimately, medals are handed out and an overall national champion is awarded. The U.S. Culinary Olympic team in 1988, which I served on, was the world champion of the Culinary Olympics in that year. So, Score. Um, what was your standout dish from that from that? Well, it was actually, it's a team effort. So what we really, I think, raised everybody's eyebrows with was in our the hot food presentation where we presented dishes that were truly American dishes. I think at that point still, there was a lot of questions as to whether America really had a national cuisine. And we punctuated the fact that we did with foodstuffs that were American ingredients prepared in American fashion. It was well received. Excellent. Excellent. So now you came back home, as it were, not to Minnesota, but to the CIA, first as a faculty member, and then you moved up the administrative masthead, ultimately. Correct. I've had many careers in the same organization, from faculty member to overseeing different departments within the Institute, both in California and overseeing our consulting activities, because the CI does quite a lot of consulting to companies and organizations that need advice on their food strategies and those kinds of things, and really ending up more in a truly hardcore academic environment, learning the ropes of what it means to run a higher education institution with all of the requirements and expectations of an accredited university, essentially. Mm -hmm. So, and been a big part of helping evolve the Institute from being what started with as an associate's degree granting institution to a baccalaureate institution. And now we offer a multitude of master's degrees and on the pathway to soon potentially be offering a doctoral degree at the Culinary Institute. So. You've been at the CIA long enough to see the impact of lionizing chefs in the popular world. What's going on? What do you think of it? How do you feel that affects young chefs, aspiring chefs, before they even buy their first knife kit? Yeah, it's been fun because the honest truth is that sending a son or daughter off to become a chef back when I did that, that wasn't something that was a cocktail bragging rights of parents. It's been 
really a thrill to watch how the culinary profession has grown and evolved and become much more respected and, as you mentioned, lionized by the popular culture. It's not far-fetched to say the chefs have become the new rock stars in, in many environments. That's thrilling. It's exciting. It's also something that I hold very carefully as a cautionary note because it used to be the people entered this profession were drawn into it out of sheer passion for the craft and what we did as mm -hmm. a professional. When it becomes celebrated or even garnished with what media does to things, making it look so exciting and editing out the hard work and grunt work that needs to be done to become a professional, it causes me some concern that young people might not understand that this is a profession that requires many years of practice and hard work mm -hmm. and working your way up through the ranks. And so that that's true in, I think, in any respected profession. It certainly is true of this one. So I think as long as young people are attracted into it for the right reasons and recognizing there's no shortcut to the top, but an education is certainly a way to make that a more direct path and one that has a navigation to it, a GPS really, to how do you become an executive chef and, or a chef owner or any number of things that a chef can do today, which weren't really options 30, 40 years ago. There are so many instant successes that happen through the magic of television right now for chefs. I wonder if that creates a kind of crisis for a young, talented chef coming out of the CIA with arguably the best professional credential they could have, that their expectations when they go into somebody's kitchen as a stage or as a, a line cook makes it hard for them to stay the course. Well, I can't say in every case, but we work very hard and our faculty work very hard at making sure that our graduates leave here with appropriate expectations as mm -hmm. to where they deserve to be placed in the queue of the ladder in an organization, because we do a very good job of providing great culinary theory and great foundational skills, but those skills need to be honed and refined, and it would be a waste of somebody's tuition dollars to do that in this environment. There is, to some degree, almost as it is in the medical profession, there is a residency expectation of the first few years of one's working life where you're working and continuing to refine what you understand and know under the tutelage, hopefully, of somebody who provides you with not only the challenge, but also the guidance to help you really mature in your skill set to, to deserving promotions into the more senior roles. I know. I get that. But I see a sort of a generational clash between chefs who really did work their way up bit by bit, traveling around, and chefs who come out of not only the CIA, but whatever they've done, that they come out of expectations that they'll be here, they'll be there, and in two years, open their own gastropub. I wonder how you see that sobering impact happening. <laughs> <laughs> There's no doubt that the people that, be, that would be attracted to this profession, they need to have ambition. Mm -hmm. And there are times where that ambition can cause them to maybe get a little out over their skis. But I also know that the dining public and this business in general is very honest in providing direct and pretty much instantaneous feedback. Um, and if somebody's missing the mark, they will learn that quickly. And it's one of the things I think that's always one of the most fun parts about working in the food profession. There's few professions in which you start the day with raw ingredients, you write the menu, you do the prep, 
the customer comes in, they make the purchase, they get the served, and they provide their feedback. And at the end of the day, you wipe down the counters and you pretty much have completed the entire business cycle in an eight-hour shift. Hmm. If it was a bad day, you can learn from that and start with a fresh slate and new insights on the very next day. There's so many jobs, mine being one in the role that I play today, that you'll work on a project for years and not really be sure whether you're meeting the mark or not. So there's something very gratifying about that environment. And it also will take somebody who is skiing a little too fast and it'll put them back in their boots very quickly. Yeah, it's true. At the end of the day, when when everything's wiped off and clean and you go home, you're done. If you never come in the next day, if you're not the owner... (laughs) (laughs) you've at least completed that cycle. It's a good observation. And we will be back with Mark Erickson in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City, Long Island, and Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. And we are back with Mark Erickson, provost of the Culinary Institute of America. How are your applicants different now? What do they need to learn now that they didn't need to learn five or 10 years ago? They have access to so many new tools and technologies. Yeah, I'm sure this has probably been the case for as many generations as one wants to think back that every generation has a different set of circumstances and the older generation thinks the younger generation is never going to cut it. They don't they're not That is true. Not. They're never going to make it <laughs> and every generation proves the prior generation wrong. I know that's the case of today, but young people today are different than my generation was. That's not saying that it's better or worse. It's just different. They have many more tools to work with, much more access to information than has ever been available before. I can remember as a young CI student, that was when Jacques Pepin's first books came out, La Technique and La Méthode. And those two books were such a revelation for the culinary profession because nobody had ever documented the actual techniques before in photographs like Jacques did. And that was a real mind-blowing experience that when those two books became available for young professional chefs to learn from. Today, you can go on the internet and find how to prepare almost anything. So there's so much more information that they have coming into the classroom environment. What they don't have is the critical eye to be able to determine whether that video that they saw on YouTube was 
the right way or even a good way or not. They've been exposed to it, but they don't have the ability to evaluate it. So you're still working from just a, an initial exposure to something. You really don't understand it. You certainly can't necessarily apply it at that point. And so that's kind of where we we start our our program with is that they've been exposed to a lot. We have to make sense of it for them and put it into practice. You probably have to help them unlearn some of the... Exactly. I have a young member of my family who has had... He's now cooking at a local restaurant and he's doing very well. And although his parents say to me, he works really hard. He works really long hours. He goes in at 11 and he doesn't get home till midnight. And I'm like, yeah, that's about right. They said, is it going to get better? I said, no, not really. No, that's that's kind of the job. Um, so I think it is hard. But I have to ask you, what sort of the changing, the changing preference, at least in the United States, away from fine dining to more casual gastropub, bistro kind of dining and cooking, how does that affect what you teach? And first of all, is my hypothesis true? Would you say there's a turning away from fine dining? Hmm. Boy, this, we could spend hours on this topic alone. But I think it, it boils down to the definition of fine dining. And I think for many people, the concept of fine dining, the word fine is more associated with the accoutrements of the dining room and the dining experience. How expensive was the china? How fine was the silver? What was the table setting like? What was the room decorated in? And even to what degree of formality was presented in the service? So I, I think a lot of times those are the pieces of fine dining that are in many cases mm -hmm. being pushed now to be special occasion opportunities. But I still think that even if you go to more casual, so-called casual places, the degree with which the food is prepared and the degree of care put into the menu development and all that, that is even in casual dining is still done at a very high level. Mm -hmm. um, gastropubs does not mean that the food is any less respectable than that of a three-star Michelin restaurant. And, and doing casual food can be every bit as challenging, and in some cases, maybe even more so, because it oftentimes the price point of the meal doesn't allow for quite so many cooks in the kitchen to execute something that's done with a, a great many steps still. Mm -hmm. So I certainly agree that fine dining as a category is maybe being recategorized back to where it started, which was the special occasion. What's happened, I think, is what we've thought of as being casual dining has been brought up to a much higher level in America. I was in San Francisco last week, and in about the four-block area surrounding where I was staying with my daughter, there were one- and two-star Michelin chefs. Everybody's walking in shorts and sandals, and the food was exquisite, and you were hard-pressed to get a reservation, but the place was... I don't want to say bare bones because tasteful, but minimalist. The environments are much more minimalist and utilitarian and sleek. Um, yep. The So you're making, and I think that's a useful thing for me to think about, you're making a distinction between what goes on in the kitchen with the ingredients, with the technique, and the accoutrements of how it's served and enjoyed in the dining room. And that is fair. And, and there are fewer, there, there have to be fewer brigade kitchens. 
have to be. Yeah, I think the, especially now in this post-COVID era that we're having, just staffing a restaurant has become even more challenging with the less people seeking work. I think a lot of people steered into other uh, endeavors uh, over time. So I, th I think that's causing restaurants to need to find ways to minimize the mm -hmm. unimportant parts of the dining experience or the meal experience. As you look ahead, after COVID, after all sorts of things are happening, what do you see happening over the next couple of years in the restaurant dining world? Wow. Well, if I could be a prognosticator, I would think we're going to see more of what we have seen in terms of movement in the last year. The demand of consumers has not been reduced. In fact, if anything, consumers learned during COVID how important dining out was to mm -hmm. their life and lifestyle. For a point in time during COVID, uh, there was a question as to whether the restaurant industry would survive in the post-COVID era. And I think the answer has already been demonstrated that people not only want to go out to eat, they need to go out and eat because lots of people just can't fit home meal preparation into their lifestyle and certainly not able to do it at the level that they became used to when it comes to better dining and those kinds of things. So restaurants will survive. I think that the model for the restaurant business is under challenge. It was in challenge even before COVID, post-COVID even more so. And I think we're still trying to figure that out as to what is the model for how restaurants serve all of their masters, which their stakeholders include investors, it includes the people that work there, it includes the customers, it includes the community. And I think to take a balanced scorecard approach as to what is the role of a restaurant and making sure that all four of those different quadrants are being serviced by the restaurant's existence is the only way to survive because you cannot focus on just one or two of those areas. They all need to be satisfied in order to have a long future in business, in, in the restaurant business. So, and I think we haven't learned to do that yet. Well, it seems to me that there's been much more awareness of fairness and equity in kitchens. I have worked in a lot of restaurant kitchens and I've run a few. And the idea that you have all these people who really get paid next to nothing and you feel that they're lucky to have a job. Some days they feel that they're lucky to have a job, but it seems to me that is no longer the case. I think it's a little frustrating looking at the industry, especially from the perspective I have. I know it pretty intimately, mm -hmm. um, but I'm removed from it in some ways at this point. Looking at what's going on, one of the things that I find to be very frustrating is that there are inequities in compensation between the front of the house and the back of the house. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, there's been efforts to try to correct that, but there are systems in place and there are things that prevent people from doing what they want to or should be doing uh, simply because people have gotten in and they've played around with that. The tip credit that is afforded to some operations in some states versus the lack of tip credit in others mm -hmm. really places a kind of a imbalance in the ability for the business owner to do the right thing in many cases quite famously known as Danny Meyer's efforts with the Union Square Hospitality Group and his hospitality included concept, which was, in my opinion, was a brave and brilliant move, but unfortunately um, wasn't supported by others in uh, in the community. You know, during COVID, I think Danny had to uh, step away from that effort. I still think that the tipping environment is one that causes lots of 
consternation from the dining public, and especially now that the environment of tipping has bled over into areas where it was never intended to be. And there's been quite a number of articles published recently in the New York Times and in the Wall Street Journal about this. They refer to as emotional blackmail at the checkout register when somebody has done a self-service of a buying a soda or something. And when they get the uh, the screen is presented to them, they're asked if they want to leave a tip. And it's this uncomfortable feeling that the customer has should I tip? Am I expected to tip? What If I don't tip, what do people think of me? Well, I, you know. well they never give me a nice tea again. <laughs> yeah. So, it, you know, I and I think that, unfortunately, maybe it is for because maybe it'll bring this topic of tipping to a greater discussion that needs to take place in society here in America to determine what is tipping and what is the purpose of tipping and does it deserve to be in this environment? And how is that related to this concept of what people call the service industry, which in my opinion, I think it's a mistake to call what we do in the restaurant business a service because in all honesty, I think it's more of a performance and the performers are the people that create the art in the kitchen and theirs is a skill-based performance of creating art. And the people in the dining room are to some degree doing a ballet, which is another form of artistic expression and presentation. It's choreographed and there's lots of movement. And why don't we talk about the restaurant industry as a performance industry and treat it with tickets and you don't leave a tip for the ballerina at the end of a, of a performance. So why would we need to do that in the restaurant setting? I'm just concerned. Well, no, I get that. And spitballing about this is the right thing to do because on one hand, there's sticker shock. And let's talk about the customers through this environment. You know, the customers had the experience of paying X and adding on whatever seemed normative to them. And now we've taken another look at it and said, well, that's really, that X was never a fair price. That X was being subsidized by things that we're not happy with. And customers are confused. What is your advice to, to customers when they go out to eat now? Well, I think that unless there was something egregious about the service, I think the expectation is that you should leave a, a decent tip. There's lots of different people's opinions about what decent is. I'm generally a pretty generous tipper so, because you know um, what they've done. <laughs> I, I know what they do. They yeah. deserve it. Every, yeah. every penny of it. And even if there are gaffes or slight errors in the service, I continue to be a generous tipper. Now, if I have service, which I can tell that this individual really didn't care whether I was there or not, and really didn't care whether I had a good time or not, then I reflect that in the type of tip that I leave. But I always leave some kind of tip. Me too. And I, I remember when I had my restaurants, I would say to people, they just want you to show them that you're happy they came. Things can go wrong. The meal exactly. can be wrong. You can fix that. But you have to exude that you're happy that they came. I've had experiences where the service was technically terrible, <laughs> but it was a fabulous hospitality experience yeah. because it was genuine warmth and the individual wanted to take care of you and wanted you to be there. I've gone to restaurants and had technically perfect service and the hospitality experience was terrible because it was mechanical and I was just another filled chair. One of our Boston luminaries, Steve DiFilippo, once said to me, I can teach them the skills. I can teach anybody the skills, but I can't teach them to like people. No, that's exactly <laughs> right. 
and if uh, they don't. Yeah. Hospitality quotient, as uh, Danny Meyer refers to it, is a is a really important aspect of yeah. what we do as a yeah. profession. So now you're provost. Any big waves that you're going to make at the CIA that people should be paying attention for? When you and I first met, Louise, it was through our good friend David Eisenberg. We love uh, David. The, we love David. <laughs> and that was on the topic of, of how the medical profession and the culinary profession could collaborate to bring delicious food to people in a format that promotes health. And you and I and David talked about that probably close to 20 years ago. That topic is, has, is not lost, and it's becoming even more important today. We're working on a project here at the CI that will hopefully prepare people who look like chefs and think like chefs, but they will be hopefully become a part of a medical community in the, whether you want to refer to it as a allied health professional or mm -hmm. however you want to describe it, but somebody who works with others in the health professions to provide hopefully some guidance and therapeutical value to individuals who might need help with their relationship and behaviors around food to reduce, reverse, or prevent disease because there's just way too much evidence of that in society today. With all that we know, to be where we are with the number of people who suffer from diabetes or fatty liver disease and other cardiometabolic diseases that aren't necessary if we could just change their behaviors and attitudes around food. So. It's a gnarly challenge, and I think chefs have something to contribute there. And so here at the CIA, we're working on putting together a program that would prepare young chefs to pursue a profession in that endeavor. Well, I think that's great. But this is amazing. I really appreciate you spending the time with us. I do have one question. I want you to tell me about the experience you had where everything was technically perfect, but it wasn't any fun to eat there. Without naming names, just <laughs> without naming names. Yeah, it was a restaurant just recently, and in fact, it was just a few weeks ago. A celebrated restaurant that everybody's clamoring to get into. I can't fault it for the food was very well crafted, and the service was intentionally was they delivered the food on time. It was well timed and presented without any gaffes, but. In all honesty, it was a very expensive disappointment. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, smile. And I think it's very hard for hot restaurants sometimes. I remember going into one restaurant shortly after it opened, and the people that we were with said, oh, we'd like to make a reservation here for when our kids come back from college. They would like it. And the hostess said, no, we don't do reservations. And she was she had really tall shoes on. I remember that about her, very pretty very tall shoes. And I went to her later and I said, look, you're the hot girl in town now. The restaurant's a hot property in town, but someday it's going to be January. And you're really going to wish that you had been nice to every single person who wanted to come and see you. <laughs> yeah. I'm old enough now to recognize that there's, there's karma in this universe yeah. <laughs> and it's, it can be humbling for people that may have been a little too lofty at points in their life. So just because lots of people are listening to us who are aspirational chefs as professionals and as recreational or home-based aspirational chefs, who should go to the CIA? Everybody. <laughs> <laughs> and okay. I mean that. 
for different programs because we do offer programs for food enthusiasts, which are very popular. But I just think that the world needs to treat food as being more important than they do. I'm like the carpenter who sees everything looks like a nail. And as a chef, I think that everything that could be fixed with the world can be done with food. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Whether you're talking about fixing the environment or solving the health healthcare problems or world peace, I think that food is the answer to all those questions. And so I think everybody should come to the CIA. <laughs> Thank you very much, Mark Erickson. This has been just wonderful. Thank you. It's been a pleasure for me. Thank you as well. Thank you, Mark. It was our pleasure. Thanks for listening. Let's Talk About Food is produced by The Food Voice. I'm producing, along with audio director and composer Mike Moss of Soundscape Boston. You can find more of our stories at our website, letstalkaboutfood.com, and on Heritage Radio or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's Talk About Food is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.